This is the Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing saying the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome to the Base Catholic. I don't really like Netflix films, but Love at First Sight was actually pretty cute. I remember being enthralled watching it because I forgot how much I love a good buildup and when they can capture tension while on screen. It honestly made me wonder if Hollywood will go back to the Hayes Code, where anything explicit was censored and instead they were forced to work the story within that restraint, which is honestly a lot sexier than anything made today. It's a story of fate and chance and the two main characters are actually pretty decent both struggling with the selfish choices of their goofy parents. The girl is dealing with her father leaving his family and moving to the UK, only to meet someone new and want to get married all over again. The boy is dealing with his mother getting re-diagnosed with cancer and refusing to seek treatment so she can still be herself, even if it means forfeiting another year and a half with her boys. And it was that specific aspect that made me realize how often the topic of -of end-of-life ethics comes up in our cinema and how little Catholics know what to think in those dramatized scenes. So this episode will dive a little into end of life, specifically euthanasia, which is a life topic that does not get the attention it deserves. I will be speaking with Zach Slayback, a senior fellow at AUL, covering this topic, as well as Catholic writer Leah Labrisco Sargent and Hillsdale grad Matthias Rhine. heard Leah Labresco Sargent speak on a panel in Washington, D.C. about the subject of euthanasia. And pretty much after that, I went to any and every lecture that she was featured to speak at. She's a Catholic writer and has a way with words either written or spoken. So I wanted to have her on to give the Catholic Church's position on end-of-life issues. Leah, can you give a clear breakdown on church teaching when it comes to end-of-life care? Because I think a lot of people have heard the pro-life ethic of conception to natural death, but fail to grasp what constitutes a natural death. Absolutely. You know, I think the underlying principles that we treat human beings with the respect and dignity they deserve, and that we're honest that our lives are a gift from God, and they're not something that we author or end by ourselves. So Catholic teaching is very strongly against euthanasia, the deliberate inducement of death in someone, whether that's because they're very old, because they're sick, that's when a doctor or the patient themselves is taking poison or something else that will kill them. Um, but it doesn't mean that you know the church is, for example, against palliative care. You're allowed to say, you know, I don't want to go three more rounds of chemotherapy when the odds are low. I want to focus on living my life, spending time with my family, and not pursuing additional treatment. So you can always turn down treatment and prepare to die during the end of your life. You can focus on getting the palliative care that will help you die well, hopefully in a state of grace, being able to make a good confession, spend time with your family, but you can't deliberately seek your own death. Um, so what about those cases that everybody is constantly talking about? You know, someone's unconscious or in a coma on a ventilator, breathing tube, feeding tube, you know, you get the picture. Where's the definitive answers that the Catholic Church provides for what to do in various scenarios. I would say, actually, if you're facing that choice yourself, 
it's good to make a plan before you're in that situation about what kind of help you want. Because, you know, the ethics of removing support are trickier than the ethics of whether you want to receive that support in the first place. So Catholics are allowed to say, if I'm not able to breathe on my own, if I've had a serious accident, I don't want heroic measures, you know, I'm all right to leave life when God calls me, you're allowed to either decline or accept those helps. What's more complicated is when you're already on them, making the active choice to remove them. And what I would actually say is for a family that's facing that question, there's a online um, or a, a phone call line you can call. Um, the National Catholic Bioethics Center operates a helpline for families. If you have questions about your particular circumstances, it's easy to ask an ethicist and say, look, we want to care for my, fam- my mom, my dad. They can't tell us exactly what they want, and we want to know how we can best balance their comfort, and the amount of aid they need. And we've called that line ourselves to ask for help when we were in a tricky situation and didn't know exactly what the counsel of the church was. Okay. And so same thing when it comes to someone who is maybe brain dead. You know, you hear in secular culture, you know, people are often labeled as vegetables. Um, How do we as Catholics, acknowledge the dignity of that person? And I think as family members, you know, especially people who are very pro-life, you want to hold on to that possibility that, you know, either they could have a recovery or that you don't want to do anything that's going to technically kill them. So how do people approach situations like that? I think, you know, language like brain dead and vegetable isn't very helpful language, partly yeah. because it, it takes us away from the humanity of the person. Exactly. You know, what I think is more helpful is when you're talking to a doctor, you can say, all right, what's leading you to think they aren't going to recover? You know, if we wanted to try and give them a chance, what would the timeline look like? What kind of supports would we give? What would be a signal we might want to change our mind, right? So I think in those conversations, it's good to steer doctors away from language that kind of denies the personhood of the patient. Because it's hard to trust the advice they're giving if they're not talking about a person when they give it. You know, there are injuries from which people don't recover. And then, you know, depending on the circumstances, I kind of do point people towards the hotline rather than give a blanket advice. You know, you're allowed to not always choose every life-saving measure that's available to you. But I think it's always really important that everyone on your care team be talking about the person that's in front of them and not just a collection of capacities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember specifically, I think everybody did the Terry Schiavo case from back in mm-hmm. the day where they were actively starving her. What would you say in situations like that where somebody is dependent on you know, a machine to breathe or um, a feeding tube to eat? I think it's important to make a clear distinction between you know, someone who cannot live right, like versus someone who lacks some capacities that we value in people, whether that's the ability to speak up clearly, the ability to interact with other people, and that people don't forfeit their humanity when they lose some of those capacities. Usually that's a lot at the other end of life when children with profound disabilities are discussed as better off aborted because they won't get to do the things other children do. So again, the fact that someone can't get out of a bed again doesn't mean you know, necessarily that fact alone that they're not alive, alive or their life is not worthwhile. You know, when it comes to my own choices, I think um, for my family, I would probably tell them not to seek a great deal of mechanical support for me if I were in a difficult medical position. Um, And that's part because I think our capacity to sustain life has kind of outstripped our judgment on when to apply it. In a case where I had a severe medical incident, I would probably tell my family to avoid putting me on a ventilator unless the doctors gave them 
you know, a strong prognosis that putting me on a ventilator would give me the time I needed to recover or heal, as it did for some patients during COVID infections. Um, because once you're once you're kind of hooked up, then you don't want your family to be in the position of having to make an active choice to unhook you. But mm-hmm. neither do you necessarily want to be in a case where you you kind of had a natural death before you. And then you have this machine that's keeping you alive and then also obstructing your death. Total sympathy for folks who say, look, we made a we made a panic decision in the moment of crisis. And if we could have known, we might not have picked those supports. Um, and I think that's why it's really important to have those conversations before the crisis. I'm here with Zach Slayback, who is a senior fellow at Americans United for Life, the nation's oldest pro-life advocacy organization. He's also an investor at a venture capital fund and an author published with McGraw-Hill. But more importantly, he's Marlo Slayback's husband, one of my favorite guests who you might remember from a few shows ago. Zach, you kind of fly under the radar, but you've done quite a bit. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you ended up going from venture capital and technology to the pro-life movement and specifically with end-of-life ethics? Sure. Um, so professionally, you know, by day, I, I work in venture capital, which means we invest in technology companies, right? But while working on that, I've had the opportunity to really get to see behind the scenes of how a number of important moral issues work, right? Uh, whether that's just through people I've met or opportunities I've been introduced to through other people in my network. And and along the way, one of the topics that became very, very clear to me was just like the entire set of, of life issues in general, uh, but particularly euthanasia, end-of-life care, a combination of you know personal experience, getting to see several close family members walk through those final stages of end-of-life care, as well as just acquainting myself with the behemoth of interests that there are out there advocating for things that I would take it your audience based on the name of the show and what we're going to be talking about would, would find uh, at the very least incredibly morally questionable, if not downright repugnant. You know, wearer of many hats, uh, but <laughs> I, I try I try as much as I can and that those hats uh, ideally uh, make a decent impact. Yeah. So the interest of me wanting to do a segment on this I'm so glad that you talked about family members because it came from a personal experience I had this summer with my maternal grandmother that was in the hospital, almost dying. And the longer she was there, the worse she got. You know, praise God and thank Mary, she's out and made a good recovery for being 91. But I think for most people, you're not really prepared to know what you believe about end-of-life care or ethics until an event like that kind of places you in that mental space. But it also got me thinking about the state of our healthcare in general. And this might be slightly off topic, but, you know, I want your take. Honestly, I'm not surprised to see euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide becoming more normalized in mainstream medicine. And that's not just because, you know, most OBGYNs are pro-choice. But based on the care that I witnessed, and this is even in Cleveland where we have world-renowned hospitals, there was just a total lack of concern for the elderly and a lack of compassionate and competent care in general. And if you didn't have a family member with you 24-7 as an advocate, I mean, you were kind of screwed. And so, and there were many elderly people that didn't have family members that I saw and I was being pulled in because of, you know, whether the nurse hadn't been there in a few hours or, or what have you. And I plan on discussing, you know, the decline in the profession of nursing with my sister who left nursing after COVID and some friends who are in the field and have a poor opinion of the field. But to start out big picture, you know, Marlo had mentioned in a previous interview that, 
you guys are both kind of pharmaceutical, mainstream medical establishment skeptics, even though your mother-in-law is a doctor. And so I wanted your opinion on if you're blaming a lot of what we're seeing in healthcare on COVID or if it's something that started going downhill much earlier in your estimation in terms of ethics. Because it's interesting to me that the reputation is that it's terrible everywhere. And there's just kind of this acceptance among people at the hospital that like, well, this is just how it is. This is the new normal. Yeah, I think it's a deeper question than COVID, right? I think COVID highlighted the difficulties of Mm. what we might call industrialized medicine to a lot of people. Uh, But I I would suspect that most of the qualms that, you know, people like yourself and, and me and some of your listeners might have with the existing industrialized medicine system, you know, predate COVID. Uh, probably predate uh, a lot of Medicare, Medicaid reform, probably even predates, you know, the Great Society reforms under LBJ. Um, and it goes back to something more like what we would call, yeah, industrialized medicine, right? You don't, you don't see anything like uh, the family doctor anymore, right? You have the mm. PCP. Um, you might have the family PCP, but you have the PCP. And who do you see for your PCP? Well, you see the person your insurance company sends you to, right? Or the insurance company allows you to see. Uh, and I suspect that a lot of the decline in what we, what we might call uh, either personalized medicine or uh, family-oriented medicine uh, comes probably around the same time that you see the rise of large health insurers. And you also see, I'm sure there is some element of uh, legal regulation uh, making this more and more difficult as well. Like the fact that you can only uh, get health insurance either directly through one of these exchanges, which is itself a fairly recent thing, or uh, through your employer, mm. right? So I think there is some element of collusion between the large health insurers and you know the the regulatory, the administrative state. Certainly, I mean we we saw this under a lot of the regulation and lobbying around Obamacare. The health insurers were in general very in favor of it. And you have to wonder, well, why would they be so in favor of it? Well, you know, I, I, I personally would also be in favor of any kind of law that forced people to buy my product. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there, it's a fairly complex topic. Now, I think what you've seen over the last, um, probably over the last half century since the decline of that family doctor, the decline of the, the home visit from the doctor, you see medicine becoming something that is uh, largely a function of inputs and outputs and that includes inputs and outputs of human capital, right? So if you go and you look at the balance sheet of any, any major hospital, a big part of, uh, for that hospital to drive revenues, now most of that revenue is from billing to insurance, but the input for that revenue billed to insurance uh, or coming from the insurance is patients, right? It's, it's, it's a lot like industrialized education. You know, I've done a lot more personally on the education topic than I have healthcare, but it's very, very similar if you look at how the funding tends to work, right? Whether we're talking about higher education, we're talking about K-12, the students are not the customers of the institution, they're input, right? Mm. And the customers tend to be either the state in the case of K-12 or the parents in the case of higher ed. And even then in the case of higher ed, really the customer is still the state because so much of it is offset by federal Mm, funding, right? Um, so there's a big incentive to you know, get the right patients in the beds. And when you don't have the right patients in the beds to turn them over. Similarly, I think you see, you see a similar human capital kind of framework, uh, applied to the profession of medicine, right? 
know, uh, Ivan Illich is, is really the, the writer that I'd encourage your uh, listeners to, to pull up. He, he was a uh, author in the mid-century who uh, wrote a, a, a number of pieces on the industrialization of medicine and the industrialization also of education, actually. Uh, and he would point out that when you start to introduce medicine into a, a, as a sort of a norm, especially a norm where uh, it is something that there is an incentive for people to pursue, it becomes the expectation in many cases. Mm -hmm. And pushing back against it actually is, is this weird opting out that people shouldn't otherwise do. Even though if you went before that medicine becoming the norm, um, you know, not pursuing the medical route would be considered the normal solution, right? So we have this highly medicalized society. Now, the highly medicalized society also needs a lot of doctors. It needs a lot of nurses, right? So this is why every doctor or nurse you talk to is exhausted and overworked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because the system requires it, right? Because the system requires uh, as much input, especially a potential, preferably high margin input, um, primarily meaning patients, and as much turnover, especially that lower margin input, as they can get. So you have this combination of the social norm that has pushed everybody to pursue medicine when they actually don't need to pursue it, right? I mean, patients. There are many, many cases where people don't need to go to the doctor, don't need to go to the hospital, but we have been highly conditioned, largely because of the incentive framework that we live within, yes. to go pursue uh, medicine, to go to the doctor, to go to the ER, uh, to go to the urgent care. When, when really a lot of these things, maybe your grandma was right. You really just needed some chicken soup and, <laughs> you know, some rest. Um, but then you also have to have a similar human capital regime to deal with that big influx of patients, right? And these things feed each other. When you have more and more doctors and really more and more administrators, you need more and more patients to justify the cost of more and more, really, again, administrators. Again, I think the metaphor to higher education to K-12 is actually a really good way of trying to understand what's gone wrong in medicine. It's very, very similar. Why are universities so expensive today? You know, you sometimes get somebody going, they like complaining about, oh, the, the stadium that the university built or, oh, you know, all these like underwater basket weaving professors. And, you know, and we can we can have honest conversations on, you know, should the should the university really be a sports franchise with classrooms attached? And should we actually have majors in underwater basket weaving? But that's actually usually not the thing that's driving the cost in the universities. The main thing that's driving the cost in the universities really is the administrators. The administrative bloat has far exceeded the, uh, the teaching side of things, right? Or yeah. the, even the number of students. And we see something very similar in medicine where you can chart, you know, the number of, uh, administrators per doctor in hospitals over the last 30 years. And it's, there's just this gigantic gap, right? As you get more and more and more administrators for every single doctor, but of course the costs are going to go up. Well, when the costs go up again, there's an incentive to keep pushing people through the system. That's also why you see uh, these hospitals tend to build more and more of these specialty clinics. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I think it also applies to government too. Um, yeah. Now, what's so interesting is that I think when we come to end of life issues, even for the devout Christian that is wanting heaven, it's so intuitive in us to like want to keep surviving, to want to hold on to life. Like, I find that so interesting that the people who should be probably the most excited to die 
are actually the ones that fight the most to live. You're, you're getting this trend in society of an unwillingness to suffer. And yeah, so there's, no, I mean, there's the, the mindset of like, I don't want to have to endure something if I don't have to. That's definitely there. Right. I mean, the, the secular world does not provide any sort of framework for meaning and suffering, right? The Terry Schiavo case is, is like the main case here that people's minds would go to. Yes. Right? Uh, almost 20 years ago, something like that. Uh, but it is not cases like the Terry Schiavo case that you see the advocates for euthanasia pull out when they do their state-based campaigns. It tends to be much more like the Kevorkian cases, right? That's so Where they find some they find someone who's who's very aware, uh, knows what's going on in their situation, and still wants to die to be killed by a doctor or to kill themselves. Um, and that's the campaign that you've seen them push through in a bunch of states. You know, it, it actually just got vetoed. Uh, they, they tried to push it through in Nevada earlier this year, and the governor of Nevada, you know stood up and vetoed uh, the legislation, which was uh, one of the only times recently where you've seen this get through a state legislature and the governor uh, decide to veto it. Usually by the time it gets through a state legislature, you know, it's, they've already done, laid the groundwork there. But this question of suffering, I think, is the important one, right? It's, it's the one for us as Christians, as Catholics, to really try to understand because I think it's very easy for us to make a bad case here and end up actually not only making our pro-life position look worse, uh, but also, you know, making uh, the, the Christian ethic look, look bad because you can talk to, you know, secular materialist atheists, even if they're not explicitly secular materialist atheists, people who live practically as secular materialist atheists, and to tell them that there is meaning in suffering, that there is something salvific about the suffering that we have to go through is a totally foreign concept to them in the modern world. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm reminded of this quote from St. Therese of Lisieux towards the end of her life, where she said, you know, I'm suffering very much, but am I suffering very well? That's mm. the point. And, yeah. and that... God, that gets you right us, there. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> she has a tendency to do that. Um, I, I think for us, it's it's being able to live that out personally, but also... Uh, being able to live that out with our families, um, that, that is going to be the compelling point to a lot of people um, at, when this, this comes on your state level or eventually on the national level. We'll be back with Zach when we come back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Base Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer. Here's the continuation of my conversation with Zach Slayback about euthanasia. Well, when you were talking, I was thinking, I'm, I'm wondering if this push for total autonomy of the body, mm-hmm. this I decide when and how I die, somehow came out of the sexual revolution related to birth sure. control and abortion and the gender ideology that we see today. Can you give us maybe an overview of the history of the movement and if you see any overlap there? Sure. I mean, you do tend to see that the, the movement starts to get more organized, at least in the United States, right around the same time that you see a lot more of the push for sexual liberation, right? You're looking at like the 60s to the 80s is where you start to see more and more normalization of this stuff. 
it is very, very uncommon to advocate for this kind of stuff in the 40s and 50s. Now, in the early 20th century in the United States, had a uh, tendency to flirt with uh, eugenics. Yeah. Uh, so there was certainly some element of the pro-euthanasia stance around then, but it was more this eugenics-flavored uh, pro-euthanasia stance. But especially after World War II and after it became very, very clear what the Nazis were doing, there was this very quick pullback in the United States uh, against eugenics largely in general, but especially against euthanasia. Um, so you really see the movement start to get organized around this gentleman named Derek Humphreys, and he ends up starting an organization called the Hemlock Society. And there's something about these organizations. They tend to choose like very, very creepy names. <laughs> um, they're either just like blatantly creepy, like Hemlock Society, calling to mind, you know, uh, the, the deaths of, of great classical thinkers poisoning themselves, right? Um, <laughs> even though poisoning themselves because it's a death sentence. Um, or they tend to be like very new speaky, right? The big one today is an organization called Compassion and Choices. And we'll, we'll get to them. Uh, but, you know, Humphrey starts... Uh, the Hemlock Society, uh, he writes a, a number of books uh, advocating for euthanasia, advocating for the pro-death stance. One of the things that I think is interesting about the, the euthanasia movement is, especially in its, its early organized uh, years, you know, like the 1980s in particular, you go read Humphrey's works and you find they hate technology. They're very, very uh, technophobic. Because I think the image that technology provides to them is this idea of somebody, you know, strapped to a machine uh, that's keeping them alive while they're actually suffering rather, rather immensely. Hmm. So they, they hate technology. They tend to take this very anti-technological stance, which is, in a certain sense, I think actually very different than the sexual revolution. I, I do think there's this broad shift towards what we might call autonomy or autonomy-oriented liberalism mm -hmm. that is behind both of these. But the sexual revolution is a technological revolution, right? The mm, only reason yes. the technological revolution takes root as it does is because of the pill. Wow. Um, whereas the euthanasia movement, and I think this is one of the reasons why the euthanasia movement has been slower on the uptake than, say, the abortion movement or all the other stuff around the sexual revolution. I think it's it's inspired by similar uh, autonomy, uber allis kind of values, uh, but is not fundamentally a technological uh, oriented movement. That is so true. Uh, so, you know, the, although the is, could you make the argument that the drugs that they're administering, you could, but again, like you go back and you read the documents that these people publish and they have, you know, uh, non-pharmacological ways that they encourage uh, suicide mm. um, that are, you know, yeah, there is a technological element in them, but there's no massive technological revolution like there is with the pill, right? Okay, okay. Um, so then the Hemlock Society ends up splintering off into a couple different groups. Uh, it eventually becomes what we know today as Compassion and Choices. There's a much more radical uh, organization that is affiliated and or affili affiliated genealogically uh, with Compassion and Choices called uh, the final exit network, which of course, you know, oh compassion, my, com compassion and choices never wants to talk about. Talk uh, about a name. Well, because what final exit network does, and they're they're not formally affiliated organizations. I want to be clear about that, but they do come out of the same you know trunk of a tree, right? Uh, chronologically, uh, final exit network teaches people how to kill themselves, right? And there have been numerous cases where. 
these people have been charged with manslaughter uh, and they've been charged with similar crimes in different states across the country. But that is the the end goal of something like Humphrey's pro-euthanasia stance is to provide somebody with you know this this bastardized form of autonomy where you, you can actually use your autonomy to undermine your autonomy, which is the irony <laughs> of the, the, the autonomy stance. Wow. Um, and they, 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 they try to facilitate this. Now, it's a, it's a small organization, not nearly as large or as well-funded or as active as Compassionate Choices. Now, there's, so on the federal, on the national level, we have Compassionate Choices, and then there's another organization called Death with Dignity. Uh, but both of these organizations actively advocate for this, right? So uh, they're kind of in the sense, I, I wouldn't quite call them something like Planned Parenthood, where Planned Parenthood actually has the abortuaries and goes about doing what they do there in addition to their advocacy, whereas Compassion Choices is, is purely an advocacy organization. And last I checked their annual reports, you know, this is an organization with about 40, $44 million in a war chest. Wow. Uh, so it's a, it's a very well-funded organization, very well organized. Every year they tend to push through uh, pro-euthanasia legislation on the state level. Uh, and they tend to be very active targeting states like New York and Connecticut in particular. You have to ask yourself, you know, who would, who would advocate for something like this? And it's a little opaque because a lot of these organizations, you know, their donors are foundations, which you don't really have any sort of transparency into, or they list their donors anonymously. Uh, but to the extent that you can get some uh, familiarity with what who's behind them based on their annual reports, uh, it tends to be a mix of left of center foundations, uh, which is not particularly surprising. Um, a lot of individuals who, you know, otherwise don't really pop up anywhere else. And then a handful of libertarians. Um, mm. So that tends to be the coalition currently funding something like Compassionate Choices. Um, and then you break down the foundations. Yeah, a lot of them tend to be these generic left of center foundations. Uh, but then some of them are some of these bizarro foundations. Like there's one that is uh, one of the heirs or heiresses of a Gilded Age magnate. Uh, and the topics they really tend to care about are local parks, ecology, population control. What? <laughs> uh, so some, some bizarro uh, coalitions pop up with, with these groups. Interesting. Now, what do you foresee happening here? I mean, we've, we've kind of seen in the news various stories coming out of Canada, stories coming from the Netherlands, you know, out in Europe. But I mean, realistically... What are we seeing here in America? On the pro-life side, the coalition that I think is, is, is really truly like doing God's work here is largely one led by dis disability rights advocates. Um, yes. Because th these groups understand, you know, you and I, I, I you know, I, I think we are opposed to this for a variety of reasons. Um, but you know, I take it that you and I both are, you know, of, of relatively good uh, health at this time in our lives. Uh, this is a very real topic, though, for people who are sick, who are aging, and who are disabled. Um, and there's a, a very real concern. I think we're seeing this lived out in Canada in particular. Uh, there's a very real concern that the right to die becomes the duty to die. Mm, yes. When, when euthanasia was legalized in Colorado, the, the governor was quoted at one point as you know, saying that the uh, that the the aging, for example, should just die and get out of the way, uh, and you know that's kind of a cartoonish way of presenting things. But 
it's, I think it's a very real concern for a lot of these people. Uh, I, I think it's a very, very real concern under something like the single payer uh, funded system like you see in Canada. But I also think it would become a very real concern here in the United States where although we don't have something quite like the Canadian model, we do have something like Medicare and Medicaid, which sets up a set of incentives that are very, very similar to the ones set up in Canada. Mm -hmm. And even separate from those, if you are looking at this from the perspective of a health insurer, in many cases for the health insurer, it would be cheaper for them to have patients die than for have those patients than for those patients to continue to uh, go through very expensive for them low margin healthcare. So, you know, one of the things that you see is if you if you look up coalitions on this, you tend to see similar to abortion, libertarians tend to be fairly quiet on this topic. Or when they when they talk recently, they they do very good work, like what's going on in Canada, right? So, for example, if you look through the archives of Reason magazine, there's some good stuff on what's going on in Canada and why it's so bad. But they, they kind of miss the miss the forest for the trees, right? They they talk about oh, you know how, how terrible the single payer system is, uh, instead of talking about how terrible euthanasia is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that insurers insurance companies can do the same thing that the government could do. Yeah, there's there's good reason to believe that the incentive is set up that way. We actually see this already in how insurance companies and healthcare systems work hand in hand to encourage people to set up living wills well before they actually need to have these. This is a topic that's kind of adjacent to the euthanasia one, but part of end of life care in general, but I think should be on people's radars where a living will is a document that you draw up uh, to say, you know, if I am in X, Y, or Z position in the hospital and, you know, not, not cognizant, not aware, I'm incapacitated. These are the things that I do or do not want to have happen to me. You know, on the face of it, it seems, you know, maybe, maybe okay. Uh, definitely presents a lot of practical questions. But when you really dig into how these things practically function, they're very, very worrisome. A, if there's any sort of ambiguity, you know, that then presents the opportunity for a number of parties who have a certain set of interests and incentives, some of which are aligned with each other, some of which aren't, to push for certain outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, B, depending on how these living wills are drawn up, they can be drawn up with incredibly leading questions, right? So uh, somebody recently sent me a screenshot from a living will product that a major health insurer was encouraging their, their members to sign up for. And the questions are just so incredibly leading. That's something like, you know, if I were in a position where I was in so much pain that I could not even put on my shoes in the morning and I was alone, this is, I, I would not want X, Y, or Z, right? Wow. So very clearly puts people in a position where they tend to prefer or, or guide themselves towards the pro-death position. I mean, think about if you're an older person and you're very confused. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of problems with, with things like living wills, right? It's just an example to me that you see the health insurers pushing this is an example of what is to come if euthanasia becomes the norm in the United States. The other thing that we haven't talked about at all is the cottage industry that has started to pop up around it in places where it is legal to travel from out of state to acquire euthanasia. Um, to, I mean, yeah, to, to kill yourself, I mean, if, let's be honest with the language. Uh, Oregon, for example, has started to experience a little cottage industry 
of, you know, last meals, last stay at a bed and breakfast, right? Last movie, things like oh that. Oh my God, it's so morbid. I, and it's what you would naturally expect to pop up, one, when these things are legal, and two, in, in a culture of death. I don't think, when we're looking at what's going on in Canada in particular, if somebody is concerned about this issue, I think we need to understand that this is not something that is unique. There's no reason why this is something that would be unique to the Canadian system. In fact, we are way more likely to experience something like what is going on in Canada than any other, you know, example that some pro-euthanasia advocate's going to go and pull up from some, you know, second world country where this might actually be legal. Because the American system, the American culture is very similar to the Canadian culture. This is a, a major issue. It, it, it's a very well-funded issue. There is no pro-life equivalent to compassion and choices. Uh, you know, you get organizations like Susan B. Anthony List, which does a lot of the political groundwork, and Live Action, which does a lot of the cultural stuff, uh, and then AUL, which does a lot of the advocacy stuff. And they do touch on end-of-life stuff. Let's put it this way. A lot of the attention is on abortion, rightfully so. But there is no dedicated organization fighting against euthanasia. Mm. Whereas there are, you know, tons of organizations fighting for abortion and organizations dedicated solely for arguing for euthanasia. Why do you think so, that is? I mean, I think it's just a very, I, I think it is this, this very visceral thing. You know, it's, it's way easier for somebody to uh, look at somebody who is, dying and suffering and, and rightfully like feel compassion for that person but i i think in our existing culture today our existing catechesis uh, under you know this autonomy above everything kind of culture it's it's very easy to look at those people and draw the wrong conclusions about what they need what yeah they want, right well, or for those people themselves as well yeah because when you were talking i was even thinking about you know you were saying about insurance companies but i was thinking even about our modern family structures. I yeah. mean, people don't want to be a burden and people don't want to be burdened, which reminds me of something Leah Labrisco Sargent said on a panel. And then the parents feel profoundly guilty about kind of burdening their children. I think that's the, the last piece, which is a cultural piece. There's a big division between a subset of American families where the parents view their job as settling their kids off and then kind of never asking anything of them, right? They give, they raise them, they send them to college and then they watch and appreciate. And other parts of American culture, including a number of immigrant cultures, where that's crazy, right? Like kids have a filial duty to take care of their parents. And I saw this in college where there was a huge you know, gap between friends of mine who came from much poorer families, where the family knew that having a kid go to Yale meant that kid was supporting the family, parents, siblings, other folks, you know, kids who pick career paths thinking, I'm going to need to pay for my parents' retirement. And kids who came from more of my background where we were better off in the first place, but where parents felt like they would have really hurt their child if they needed money from them later in life, rather than seeing that as the kind of flow between generations. So I think there are structural things we can do to free people up to give the care they'd like to be able to give. But there also just needs to be an acknowledgement that your parents will become needy um, and that you get to love them by taking care of them or by supporting them and that they haven't failed as parents by being human beings. And I mean, right. I would even see that when I was visiting my grandmother in the hospital or at rehab center, there were so many old people with no family there. It was so sad. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, like, I understand you don't want the living wills, 
But what is a person to do if they don't have a family member that is going to advocate correctly for them? Because when you're out of it or when you're older and you've, you've kind of lost your wits, you know, they don't know what's going on. And so they don't know what's being done to them. And if they don't have something in, in place, you know, a structure put in place where someone's going to be held responsible if they go against those wishes, what would you recommend them do? We're, we're stuck in structures of sin, right? Yeah. And there's with these structures, these structures are going to push us towards vicious outcomes. Um, there's a woman in Canada named Amanda Ochtman who's done a lot of good work bringing to light a lot of end of life stuff. And just normalizing talking about death, right, in a not particularly morbid way. And she recently interviewed a, an, an, an older woman who actually had tattooed on her arm, don't euthanize me. Wow. <laughs> um, because she, she saw what was going on, and she also has, has known firsthand a lot of the dehumanizing effects of these faceless systems. Wow. Um, I also think more broadly, generally, when you dig into the advocacy of these groups, right? So why is there so much support for these things? One of the things you tend to find is fairly common about the advocacy for euthanasia is it tends to largely be, not, not completely, but it tends to largely be from people who are used to having control over their lives, mm -hmm. right? So it tends to be, you know, wealthier people. It tends to be people from certain zip codes rather than others. And when you actually dig into how the both the opinion polling and how representatives vote in state legislatures, state legislatures on this topic, when you start to look at populations who they they understand that not everything in their life is going to be in their control, right? Rightfully or wrongfully, they understand that. They tend to be much less supportive of something like euthanasia. Again, it, it's going to feel like pushing against the grain because I think our culture prioritizes autonomy. Uh, I think it's one that prioritizes this, this ultimate value of control over one's life. But the reality is a lot of people don't have that practically. And none of us actually have it in the yeah. grand scheme of things. During my grandmother's funeral, like the priest goes like this, he looked at all of us in the pews and he goes, uh, Dorothy has been preparing for this moment for decades. Decades. Yeah. Yeah. Decades. <laughs> She's been preparing for her soul to ascend for decades. And then everyone's like shifting in their seats, looking at each other like, oh God, we're all heathens. <laughs> Did you know that according to US Funerals Online, this year the cremation rate is predicted to reach close to 60% with a forecast that the national cremation rate will now reach 80% by 2035? Matthias Ryan, a recent Hillsdale grad, has an interesting thought about this. Matthias, welcome to The Base Catholic. Thanks for having me. So yeah, I, I noticed this uh, statistic and I was just looking up kind of the generational difference between ages of boomers and Gen Z and just how many um, more boomers there were than there were Gen Z. And then I noticed just about the burials and I was thinking about, you know, this means if there's 80% of deaths of the boomers are all going to be cremated, this means that so many people from our generation, the Gen Z and even millennials are experiencing far fewer burials than previous generations. And I was just thinking about the mental impact that that would have and the spiritual implications, because for most of human history, people would witness things like birth and death and burial and cultures attached primary significance to these events. I mean, these are the hallmark events of life. I mean, it's life and death, like 
literally. But now for whatever reason, we don't experience this. A lot of people don't witness their grandparents dying. You know, they, they die in a hospital um, away from the home. They don't witness their siblings being born. They're born in a hospital away from home. Mm. And then now they don't even witness the burial of their grandparents or their loved ones. So there's this disconnect between life and death and our experience. Yeah. Do you think the lack of religiosity is contributing to why people are going towards cremation? Because it's cheaper and it's easier. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely a lack of religiosity, but even just a lack of understanding of like sacred things, like death as a sacred thing, as opposed to now I think people think when they think of death, they think of death as just sort of like the ceasing of brain activity, you know, like, oh, electrons are no longer firing, you know, across the synapses. That means that death isn't celebrated and it's also not mourned. Well, I had an Irish roommate and she said that the Irish handled death well. She was talking about how they <laughs> actually have a proper wake where you stay awake all night with the deceased in the family's living room and you tell stories and you laugh and you cry and of course, she threw in, they drink. I think they could nix that. Yeah. But, you know, we don't really have that in America. Do you think there's a relation to our lack of having a cathartic communal grieving experience and this new finding? Well, I'm, I'm surprised that, um, I mean, that kind of stands in the face of all the accusations that Irish people aren't very emotional. This is definitely not a very stoic thing to talk about the loss of a loved one like that. It's very beautiful. Um, I thought it was too. There's not really time of of mourning where people wear black. Yeah, I, I think it's just connected to how scared people are to confront death. And so they're not even going to talk about how wonderful people's lives were. That's maybe a very superficial thing. That's all I have for you this week. I want to thank my guests, our show's chaplain, Father Kevin Estabrook of Cleveland, Kyle for helping me with this week's show, and you for listening. Make sure to tune in next week. If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.